Well, if you have a Bible this morning, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up and one of our ushers will bring one to you. I've been preaching through the book of Luke, and we are now in Luke chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 28 to 40. Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for another beautiful day you've blessed us with this morning. We thank you, Father, for an opportunity to to gather together, uh, to to sing, to to pray. Thank you for an opportunity to gather together to learn more about you. Uh, Lord, as we open your word, uh, Father, we don't want to do it casually. Uh, We don't want to just let um, the Bible here just kind of wash over us. Lord, we want to be very active as we open the word. We do believe, Father, you have breathed this out for us, for our eternal good. And Lord, we just ask now that you would bless this portion of your word uh, for, for your glory and our joy. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen. On December 4th, 1977, in Bangui, the capital of the Central African Empire, Bokasa I, who formally held the title of President for Life, well, he then declared himself to be Emperor, Imperial Majesty over the entire empire, and Bokasa insisted that a coronation ceremony be performed for him, a ceremony that the BBC later described as extremely lavish and ludicrous. The ceremony cost the country millions of dollars that they did not have. Bokasa's soldiers were dressed like 19th century French cavalrymen, and Bokasa himself was dressed like Napoleon. 
a 32-pound robe decorated with gold embroidery and 785,000 pearls, pearl slippers on his feet, and a gold laurel wreath on his head resembling the wreaths worn by the Roman emperors. And when Bokassa was finally seated on his $2.5 million golden throne, which looked like a massive, gaudy eagle with its wings spread, he then removed his golden laurel wreath and replaced it with a $2.5 million crown topped with an 80-carat diamond. A lavish and ludicrous ceremony, to say the least. And... Here in this passage in the book of Luke, we see just the beginnings of a very different type of coronation. Not the beginnings of a lavish and ludicrous coronation ceremony, but the beginnings of a very, very modest coronation ceremony. And we see a, the beginnings of a very different type of coronation here because the king here is a very different type of king. Not an arrogant, self-made earthly king like Bokassa, but an eternal, heavenly king. The, the king above all other kings. There are three main parts of this passage here. And the first thing we see here are the king's preparations. The king prepares for his coronation, his crowning. In the passage right before this, which we looked at last week, Jesus was teaching a very large crowd in Jericho, approximately 17 miles from Jerusalem. And, and Jesus, along with that large crowd most likely, Jesus has now traveled probably with this large crowd the bulk of those 17 miles, and Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem. And man, this is the end of a very long journey for Jesus. Way back in Luke 9.51, some 10 chapters ago now, Luke said that Jesus then set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus then started out on this long, slow, almost one year long trek toward Jerusalem, ministering along the way in some 35 different locations. And Jesus is now finally arriving at Jerusalem. And man, Jesus has timed his arrival perfectly. Just before Passover. The biggest festival of the Jewish calendar when the Jews would sacrifice thousands upon thousands of Passover lambs in Jerusalem to commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt over a thousand years earlier. The, the Passover is now just a little over a week away here in the book of Luke and Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem. He is not quite there yet. If your Bible has little subtitles in it, then your subtitle might say, might call this passage the triumphal entry, and that's fine, but 
Jesus doesn't actually enter Jerusalem until after this passage in verse 45. So this is really more of a triumphal approach for Jesus than a triumphal entry. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem here from the east. And Luke says in verse 29 that Jesus has now drawn near to Bethphage and Bethany, two towns about one to three miles or so from Jerusalem, and that they sat just on the base to the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is really a a mountainous ridge that runs north and south in Israel for a couple of miles, dividing Jericho from Jerusalem. And Jesus is now on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And all he needs to do now to get to Jerusalem is, is ascend the eastern slope of this ridge, descend down the western slope into the Kidron Valley, and enter the eastern gate of Jerusalem directly into the temple area. And Luke says here that as Jesus was drawing near to Bethphage and Bethany, he sent two disciples ahead to this village in front of them, probably uh, Bethphage, and Jesus tells them that in that village they'll find a colt tied up on which no one has ever yet sat. And we don't know exactly how Jesus knew the animal was there. Luke doesn't tell us here. You know, it's possible that Jesus just prearranged this somehow. He contacted some, some disciples in that town ahead of time, maybe, and told them to have a colt ready when his two disciples came for it. That's certainly possible, but it's also possible that Jesus just knew. Uh, By divine omniscience through the power of the Holy Spirit, he just knew that it was there. Jesus is God in human flesh, so Jesus might just have known a, a supernatural knowledge of this animal tied up in this little town here. Luke simply calls the animal a a colt here, but Matthew 21 specifies that it was the colt of a donkey. So a young male donkey, and Matthew says it was tied up next to its mother, and Jesus tells his disciples to go into that town, find that little colt, untie it, and bring it to him. And if anyone asks why they're untying it, Jesus says that they should simply say the Lord has need of it. And if Jesus prearranged this thing somehow, uh, then he probably told the old owners of the cult that his disciples would identify themselves with those words, the Lord has need of it. But, but if Jesus didn't, prearrange this thing, and the owners of this cult are not expecting these disciples to come for the cult, then Jesus could possibly be utilizing there a a common Jewish custom at the time called angaria, which allowed important public figures to borrow a citizen's animal for a time. And those words, the Lord has need of it, would maybe have been enough to kind of initiate this custom. And these owners think, oh, an an important person needs this colt, and they would have let the disciples borrow the colt for a time. But listen, whatever's going on right there, I think the most remarkable thing there is that Jesus is even asking for a colt at all. (laughs) I mean, man, you, you think about the life of Jesus. Up to this point in the book of Luke, Jesus 
he really hasn't asked anybody to give him anything, really, as far as material earthly goods go. You know, Jesus, he doesn't have much of anything for starters, almost no material goods of his own. He has no house to call home. He, he has no pillow on which to lay his bed, as Matthew 8.20 says. Just, just the robe on his back, the sandals on his feet, and he really doesn't ever ask people for anything. You know, in, in his life here on this earth, Jesus wasn't interested in getting things for himself. He was, he was all about giving things away. His life on earth was all about letting go. And you know, if you think about it, it, it started for Jesus when, when he was still in heaven. Before Jesus ever came to earth and took on human flesh, Jesus willingly chose to let go of some of the divine privileges that he had as the eternal Son of God. He willingly chose to let go of some of the visible glory he had enjoyed from all eternity. He willingly chose to, to let go of his glorious place in heaven that he had enjoyed from all eternity. Jesus willingly chose to, to let go of those things in order that he might come to earth and become a man. And when you think about it, Jesus as a man, he just continued to let go of things. He let go of possessions that he could have had. He let go of, of titles and, and fame and honor that he deserved. He, he let go of friends. He, he let go of family. Jesus even ultimately let go of his own life. Man, that is an infinite letting go from heaven all the way to the lowest place on planet earth, the cross. And he did it in order that he might save sinners like you and me. And his entire life was a life of letting go. And yet right here as he makes his final preparations for his coronation in Jerusalem, Jesus finally asks for something. A colt. Tell them, the Lord has need of it. And man, why, why did Jesus need a colt here? <laughs> you know, Jesus could have walked to Jerusalem like everybody else. Why ride? And why ride a donkey <laughs> of all animals? Why a donkey? Could have chosen any animal. Why, why would Jesus intentionally choose here to ride to Jerusalem on a donkey. Here's why. For starters, Jesus wanted to identify himself to this crowd here as the Messiah. Jesus, he, he wanted to declare openly here that he was the anointed Savior. He, he was the Messiah. He was the King that the Old Testament, said, the Old Testament prophets had, had promised would come to Jerusalem someday. Man, long before Jesus was ever born, the Old Testament prophets had promised repeatedly that a Messiah, God's Savior, would one day come to Jerusalem and then somehow save God's people. And the Old Testament prophets, they, they, they said that, that this Messiah would be a king from the line of David. 
A king who would reign on the throne forever. An eternal king. The king of all kings. (laughs) And man, one of those Old Testament prophets. (laughs) A prophet named Zechariah. A prophet who lived some 500 years before Jesus. Zechariah prophesied that when this Messiah eventually did come, he would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. And here it is, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Spoken 500 years before Jesus approaches Jerusalem and asks for a donkey. (laughs) Man, the crowd around Jesus on this occasion, oh my word. They would have known Zechariah's prophecy. Most of them probably very, very well. And man, when Jesus intentionally chooses, calls for, and rides on this donkey to Jerusalem, they would have known what he was saying. They would have known that with his actions, Jesus was declaring to everyone there, I'm the Messiah. I am the long-awaited Savior, the King of Kings. (laughs) Up to this point in his life, as we've walked through the book of Luke, Jesus has been somewhat secret about his identity, not wanting to to stir up some sort of political upheaval in in Israel. He's avoided publicity to a large degree. When they want to make him king, he leaves to another town not wanting them to make him some sort of political king in Israel. But now here on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the time has finally come for Jesus to declare openly his identity as the Messiah. Even though he knows it will ultimately cost him his life. With this donkey here, Jesus was identifying himself to us as the Messiah King. But you know what? Jesus was also here showing us a little bit of his nature or character as the Messiah King. See, Zechariah said that the Messiah would come humble, mounted on a donkey. <laughs> and man, Jesus is showing us here that he's a humble Messiah King. That he's a gentle and lowly Messiah king. (laughs) And you would expect a king to arrive on the scene for his coronation very differently. With all kinds of pomp and circumstance. That's how the kings of this world do it. They arrive on a war horse maybe. And in front of this massive army. We're arriving in in, in some decked out limo, limo in a ticker tape parade, this, this grand display of, of pageantry. Bokasa and his gold and pearls, lavish and ludicrous, big, bold and brash. A 
how the kings of this world do it. But Jesus is a very different type of king. He's not a mere earthly king. He's a heavenly, eternal king. He's not a big, bold, brash king. He's a humble, gentle, lowly king. And man, because Jesus is a very different type of king, he comes here in a very different type of manner. Not a war horse, not a limo, but a donkey. There's a man, Clarence McCartney, he says, quote, How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no, no garlanded hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding on the foal of a donkey. End quote. How amazing is that? How absolutely amazing is that? And a man like Bokasa, who really, in the grand scheme of things, is nothing at all. And yet he acts like he's everything. And then Jesus, who in the grand scheme of things is everything would really look here like he's nothing at all. Man, why did Jesus intentionally choose to ride to Jerusalem on a donkey? Here's why. Because a donkey was the perfect expression of both his position as Messiah King and also of his nature or character as a humble, gentle, lowly Messiah King. So that's the first thing here, the king's preparations. The king prepares for his coronation. And the second thing here is the king's praise. (laughs) The king is now praised on the way to his coronation. Jesus sends these two disciples into this little town here. You can just see them walking through town. Oh, surprise, there's the colt. Just like Jesus said, they take the colt. They tell the owners exactly what Jesus told them to tell the owners. And they take the colt back to Jesus. And now the disciples of Jesus here in this large crowd. Man, a multitude of disciples, as Luke says in Verse 37, they now begin to praise and exalt Jesus as the Messiah King. You look at verse 35 again, it starts right here. They brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. So these disciples, a multitude of disciples, they first throw their cloaks or their, their outer garments on top of this colt here. And that right there is the first sign that they are acknowledging Jesus to be the Messiah King. An average citizen would have just ridden horseback, but a king would always have a saddle. And these men don't have a saddle, these men and women. So what do they do? The next best thing, throw their own cloaks upon this colt, a makeshift and yet very, very personal saddle for a king. And Luke says here that they then set Jesus 
on the donkey. He didn't get on himself. They set him on the donkey. An average citizen would just mount an animal himself, but a king would always be lifted up and set on an animal. It was an expression of honor and exaltation. We see the same kind of thing today. A football team wins the championship. And what do the players do? Well, they frequently lift the coach up and set him on their shoulders. An expression of honor and exaltation. Giving him the honor they think he deserves. And the disciples here set Jesus on this donkey. Giving him the honor and exaltation that they think he deserves. And then as Jesus rides along, they spread their cloaks on the road and also palm branches as the other gospel writers say and that was an ancient way of exalting a king you were saying with your actions that the king was too highly honored to touch an ordinary road (laughs) it's kind of like rolling out this royal red carpet in our day That's how they did it back then. They rolled out the cloaks and the palm branches. It was another expression of praise and exaltation for King Jesus. But the clearest form of praise and exaltation from these disciples is in verse 37. If you look at it again. As Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. Amen. Will you just stop and try to picture that scene for just a second? Amen. The Passover festival in Israel is just a little bit over a week away right now. And and this was the biggest festival in Israel. And this was one of the festivals that all the people in Israel, if they could, were required to go to Jerusalem. So at this point in time, There are probably people all over Israel streaming to Jerusalem. The road that Jesus and his disciples are on right here was a major road. It's probably jam-packed with people. (laughs) And Jesus has just called for and is now riding on a donkey. Declaring openly for everyone around that he is the Messiah. That he is the Savior, the King of Kings. This thing right here is hundreds and hundreds of years in waiting. People have been waiting for this moment. For the Messiah to come to Jerusalem. And as Jesus, along with this massive throng of disciples, now reaches the crest of the Mount of Olives and begins to descend on the other side, they catch their first glimpse of of Jerusalem, the holy city. (laughs) And these disciples, can you imagine what's going on in their hearts? The expectation, the anticipation in their hearts right here. 
And they absolutely explode with this praise and exultation. Joy, praise, and exultation. Praising God for for all the, the mighty works that they had seen Jesus do. And shouting to Jesus at the top of their lungs, Hail to the King! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And man, they were shouting right there a particular verse from Psalm 118. It's verse 26. And the verse actually says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But these disciples here, they know that Psalm 118 was ultimately a promise about the coming Messiah, so they slightly reword the verse here and shout, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And man, if you remember back when Jesus first entered this world at his birth, the angels back in Luke 2.14, they said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. <laughs> and now as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem for his coronation, his disciples now say, peace in heaven and glory in the and the coming, the coming of this Messiah King to Jerusalem, it would ultimately lead to a reconciliation peace between God and man. It would ultimately lead to peace between heaven and earth. And it would lead to glory to God in the highest. Now, The disciples don't understand at this point exactly how Jesus will bring about this reconciliation peace between God and man. They don't understand yet that it will ultimately happen through his brutal, sacrificial death. But these disciples around Jesus here, they do understand at this point that that Jesus, this Messiah King, has been sent by God to somehow bring peace in both heaven and on earth and bring glory to God. And they erupt here in joyful praise as this Messiah King now descends toward Jerusalem for his coronation. So the King's preparations, the King's praise, and the final thing here in this passage is the king's rejection. As the king is heading toward his coronation here, he is rejected by some. Man, a lot of people here on the Mount of Olives, a lot of people were praising Jesus at this time as he rode toward Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. But man, it's, it's like it's been all the way through the book of Luke. While the multitudes are praising, the Jewish religious leaders are grumbling. Look at verse 39 again. Luke says that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. (laughs) 
And once again, man, the Jewish leaders are furious. Furious with Jesus. They complain here about this messianic praise that he's now receiving. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah King. They believe Jesus is some kind of imposter and therefore to praise Jesus as the Messiah like his disciples are doing here, well in their eyes that is pure blasphemy. They reject Jesus as the Messiah King and their, their rejection right there, that is a direct fulfillment of Luke 19.14. Jesus told a parable back there around Luke 19.14, a parable about a king whose citizens hated him and said, we don't want this man to reign over us. There it is. We don't want this man, Jesus, to reign over us. We do not believe Jesus is the Messiah King. And the rejection that Jesus tastes right there, that he tastes right there on his approach to Jerusalem, That rejection is just a small foreshadowing of the rejection that he will taste once he is actually in Jerusalem. The Messiah King, he has now come to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, the religious establishment in Jerusalem, they will not receive the Messiah King. So the Pharisees demand here that Jesus silences, that Jesus silence his disciples, demand that Jesus make his disciples stop praising him as the Messiah King, but Jesus won't do it. If I silence them, then the very stones on the Mount of Olives will cry out and praise me. One way or another, Jesus is saying, I will receive the praise that I deserve one way or another. Man, it's crazy ironic when you stop and really think about what Jesus is saying there, what's going on there. All of creation, Jesus is saying, even the rocks, they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah King. And they long to praise Him. As the Messiah King. But the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Who should have very easily recognized Jesus to be the Messiah King. And praised him to be the Messiah King. They're rejecting him as an imposter. Man, it's crazy. Even the rocks, even the rocks see clearly here. That which the. Religious leaders can't see at all. So, we have here in this passage just the beginnings of a coronation ceremony. Jesus heading into Jerusalem, the holy city, to be crowned as King, the Messiah, the Savior, the long-awaited Son of David, the King of all kings. And listen, Jesus will be crowned in Jerusalem. Just not the crown that you might expect for a king. Not a crown of gold while seated on a throne. But a crown of thorns while nailed to a cross. (laughs) 
a donkey now carries the king into the city surrounded by joyful shouts of praise and exultation, but in one week's time now here, one week's time, the king will then carry a cross back out of the city surrounded by violent shouts of crucify. Crucify. The humble, gentle, lowly, Messiah King will be crowned with a crown of thorns. A very, very different type of coronation because Jesus is a very different type of king. And Jesus didn't let go of all he had in heaven in order that he might then come to earth and receive a crown of gold, a crown of glory. Big and bold and brash, lavish and ludicrous. No, he came to receive a crown of shame. Jesus came to take our sin upon himself, die for our sin in order that we, through faith in him, might be forgiven and saved from an eternal hell. And Jesus came to receive the crown of shame that we deserve. In order that we, through faith in Him, might receive the crown of glory that only He deserves. This great Messiah King came to earth to be crowned with the crown of thorns. Man, but here's the thing about this Messiah King He's no longer wearing a crown of thorns. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that because Jesus humbled himself here on this earth in in perfect obedience to his Father, because Jesus willingly took the shame that we deserve, Philippians 2 says that his Father then highly exalted him and gave him a name above all other names. Man, when Jesus rose again from the dead and he ascended back to his Father in heaven, the Father removed the crown of shame, gave him a crown of glory. From a crown of thorns to a crown of gold. And here's the deal. Man, this Messiah King, he's coming back again. And you know what? He won't be wearing, he won't be riding on a donkey. The Bible says in Luke 21, 27 that Jesus will be riding on a cloud in power with great glory. <laughs> and he won't be coming the second time to save his enemies. He came the first time to save his enemies. He came the first time to love his enemies and die for his enemies. But he's coming the second time to conquer his enemies. Crown of gold on his head and a sword in his hand. Man, you think about this passage here. You, you know the million dollar question that Jesus is laying before, or that Luke is laying before us right here in this passage? You know the million dollar question here? How will you respond today? To this Messiah King. Will you praise him? Or will you reject him? Will you, will you praise him? 
Will you, will you receive him? Will, will you trust him? Will you lay your cloak down for him? Will you lay your very life down for him? Because he laid his life down for you. Will you, will you praise him? Or will you reject him and walk away from him in disgust? Or, 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 or will you maybe hang around him and, and praise him with your lips? Something that looks like genuine praise, and yet your heart is far from him. How will you respond to this Messiah King? That's the question here in this passage. And listen, if, man, if you are someone who is now praising this Messiah King, you have received him, you trust him, you are now seeking to lay your life down for him because you know he laid his life down for you. If that's you today, man, praise God. Because the Bible says that you are forgiven. You are saved from an eternal hell. And when he does return in glory, the Bible says you will appear with him in glory. But listen, until he does come again, until he does come in glory, those of you who do praise him now, make sure you are riding through this life on a donkey. Humble, gentle, and low. Man, if Jesus didn't ride through this life on a high horse, then you and I definitely shouldn't definitely shouldn't. <laughs> you know, becoming a Christian, becoming a Christ follower means among other things that you get off your high horse, you kill your pride and your arrogance, you humble yourself and you get on a donkey. Humble, gentle, low. And you aim to stay on that donkey at all times. When you interact with Christians, but also when you interact with people who are not Christians in person or on Facebook, wherever it is, when you are interacting with those who don't yet know the king and are still enemies of the king and may be your enemies, Jesus wants you on a donkey. Humble, gentle, low. Yes, speak truth to them, but speak it in love from the back of a donkey like Jesus. The king He's now received his crown. First a crown of thorns, but now a crown of glory. Man, may we receive him. May we praise him. May we follow him on a donkey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, man. You look at a passage like this, Lord, and this just turns everything in this world upside down. It just turns it on its head. And Father, we are so often in this life trying to raise ourselves high and the kings of this earth going high. And here we see the King of kings going low, the Messiah on a donkey, the Savior in humility and lowliness and gentleness for us, dying for us. I pray, Father, you give us faith to receive this King. Pray you give us faith to really see and believe he is the Messiah, the Savior. Lord, you give us faith to go in the other direction of this world. 
And instead of trying to raise ourselves high as believers, we would aim to go low. Humility, gentleness, lowliness in our interactions with everybody on this earth. Will you do this, we pray, for your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.